In a quiet corner of South Africa, an imperial legacy and a great name came to a bloody end at the hands of Zulu warriors. The death of a handsome young man shook Europe and caused millions to mourn. So who was this man killed by the Zulus in an obscure skirmish and why was his death so important? Well, his name was Louis Napoleon and he was the great nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte. His father was Napoleon III, Emperor of France and his mother was Empress Eugenie. We're talking proper pucker royalty here. He was in fact the heir to the French imperial throne. Let me tell you his fascinating story. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the show for military history geeks like you and I. Today we're revisiting a war I've covered in great detail on the podcast, but there's an extra angle I wanted to look at today, and that's the death of Louis Prince Imperial. Apologies for bouncing around a little bit so far this year and still not having finished my Peninsula War season, but I am finishing that soon. I think this year and perhaps in the future I am going to bounce around a little bit more for my own mental health to be honest because as much as I love focusing on, on particular wars and campaigns it does take a lot of mental energy to stay focused on one for so long. So just quickly before we begin today's story please do consider subscribing and leaving a comment as it really really helps. You can also visit my website redcoathistory.com where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter if you want to keep in touch. Okay, enough rambling, let's get on with the story. Louis was born in March 1856 and grew up destined to be a soldier, learning to ride before he could walk. As a teenager, he witnessed the disastrous Franco-Prussian War. As the French army was defeated by the Prussians and his father was taken prisoner, he was forced to flee to England, where he and his family were warmly welcomed. Nice people, the Brits. Eventually, young Louis was accepted as a student at Woolwich Military Academy, the place where British engineering and artillery officers were trained. He was good at riding and fencing and was popular amongst his classmates. He graduated in 1875 and finished 7th in his class of 34 cadets. Though, as foreign royalty, he was not allowed to take up a commission after graduating and so he returned to civilian life. When the Anglo-Zulu War began, he was 22 years old and desperate for a challenge. After the Battle of Isandwana, where the British were beaten, he requested to be sent to South Africa. He was keen to show his appreciation for Queen Victoria and for England, and perhaps he felt that if he performed well, it would stand him in good stead to return to France and take up his rightful place as Emperor, something he and his supporters were desperate to see. Eventually, after his mum and Queen Victoria lobbied on his behalf, he was allowed to travel to South Africa. But it was made clear that he was there on his own steam and was not a commissioned officer, nor was he to be allowed to do anything remotely dangerous. If he was killed, the Prime Minister knew it would be a diplomatic disaster for the British government. When Louis arrived in Durban, South Africa, he was treated like a celebrity. Crowds gathered to catch a glimpse of him. He quickly purchased a new horse called Percy, changed into an army uniform without rank insignia and waited for his moment. Unsure what the hell to do with him, the British commander, Lord Chelmsford, offered him a position on his staff. Louis was a real character. He would show off by vaulting onto his horse and slicing potatoes that were thrown at him with his sword. 
That sword was an heirloom that had been carried by his great uncle at Austerlitz. Within a short space of time, Chelmsford found a way to offload the prince, assigning him to the staff of Colonel Harrison, who was the acting quartermaster general. The second invasion of Zululand was now about to begin, and this time Lord Chelmsford was taking no chances. The British force was a much more powerful juggernaut than that which had been stopped and embarrassed in January. There would be no more Isandlwanas. The prince saw his opportunity and quickly volunteered to go on patrol into enemy territory, using his skills learnt at Woolwich to carve a niche for himself, reconnoitring routes for the invasion column and sketching them. But he quickly proved to be a liability. Hard to control, he was desperate to kill Zulus and prove himself. Alarm bells were ringing. So in my own book, The Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, or The Military History Geek's Guide to the Anglo-Zulu War, I actually quote Colonel Evelyn Wood, who says, The prince accompanied Colonel Redvers Buller on some patrols, and on his return from one on the 21st of May, I observed at dinner, Well, you have not been assegaied as yet. No, replied the prince, but while I have no wish to be killed, if it were to be, I would rather fall by assegai than bullets, as that would show we were at close quarters. In case you don't know, assegais were the name of the Zulu spears. Now, he was clearly a fire eater out to prove himself worthy of his illustrious ancestor. Captain Molyneux recalled in his memoirs a similar conversation. As we rode home that day, the Prince Imperial and I were walking our horses a little behind the rest, talking over all sorts of things while half a mile away in all directions were scouting parties of irregulars. Some days before, when out with Colonel Harrison and Bettington's men, the prince had gone straight for some Zulus on a hill, who luckily had bolted. Reverting to this, I asked him why he had risked his life when the death of one or even a dozen Zulus would not affect the success of the campaign. Ah, you are right, I suppose, he said, but I could not help it. I feel I must do something. So I think that gives you a sense of his character. Chelmsford, becoming nervous, gave specific orders to Colonel Harrison that Louis was to only be allowed out of camp if he was accompanied by a very strong escort. Then, shortly after 9am on the 1st of June 1879, Louis left camp to undertake another recce. His escort was six members of Bettington's horse, a locally raised cavalry unit, as well as a Zulu guide and the prince's newfound friend Lieutenant Jaleel Carey. Probably the last man in camp to see the prince was journalist Melton Pryor. I've actually got his book right here and I want to read a quote from it. It so happened that I was outside my tent in the morning, he wrote, when I saw the Prince Imperial on horseback coming from the lager. As he passed me, he said, goodbye, Mr. Pryor. Goodbye, sir, I said. I hope you will have a jolly morning. The object of his expedition was to survey and make a sketch of the next proposed camping ground. Having seen him disappear in the distance, I returned to my tent to work. Colonel Harrison had told Carey and the Prince Imperial to organise a number of black-mounted troops from the Natal native horse to also accompany them, as these soldiers were thought to be better at spotting enemy movement from a distance. Due to a mix-up, they arrived late. The impatient prince decided to leave without them. It was quickly becoming clear that despite the Prince Imperial holding no official rank in the British army, Carey was allowing him to take command. This was a massive mistake. But it's hard to blame Carey for it. Carey was in an unenviable position. So guys, I just want to pause for a moment to let you know that my book on the Anglo-Zulu War, which you just saw me reading, can be downloaded for free when you sign up for my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. I've also recently qualified as a tour guide of the Anglo-Zulu War, so if you plan on visiting the battlefields, then let me know via my website and maybe we can organise something. 
As the morning wore on, the men pushed deeper into the apparently empty Zulu landscape. As they approached the Shotshosi Valley, hot and tired, the prince gave the order to off-saddle and take a break at an abandoned homestead. At the time, the long grass was high and visibility would have been severely hampered. To compound this, no lookouts were posted. The Zulu guide, whose name, sadly, nobody thought to ask, or if they did, it wasn't recorded, fetched water and the men made coffee. Everything seemed calm and relaxed, far too relaxed. At around 4pm, the men were about to mount their horses and leave when everything changed. Lieutenant Carey later described what he saw in that terrifying moment. He said, My eyes fell upon a number of black faces moving through the grass behind the troopers. I saw the puffs of smoke, heard the volley fired into us, and saw the Zulus rush forward with a shout. They were then about 20 yards off. There was then a general rush. We can't say for certain, but it's likely that around 50 Zulus now attacked. They came sprinting forward with their war cries of Usutu. Some of Louis' escort were already mounted, some weren't, and immediately there was a desperate rush to escape. Louis himself seemed unable to mount his horse. His famous ability to vault into the saddle failed him at the crucial moment. He was dragged for some way holding on before he was forced to let go and to try and make a run for it. The great author and historian Ian Knight writes beautifully about what happened next. As Louis caught his breath, he turned towards a group of seven or eight Zulus who were by now only 20 yards away. Armed with just his revolver, Louis fired at the man nearest to him, a warrior of the Umbanambi named Habanga, who ducked down into the grass and threw a spear at close range, which struck Louis either in the chest or inside the left shoulder. The spear must have fallen out, for Louis rushed at Habanga, who turned away and dodged behind a warrior coming up behind him, a man named Guabacana, who just moments before had stabbed Abel. Guabacana had a gun and he pointed it at Louis and fired, but even though he was only 10 yards from him, he missed. Louis stood for a second and fired back at Guabacana. Umbuanzani, who was close enough to observe the chilling detail that a look of surprise passed over his face that he had hit nothing, Guabacana then threw a spear which hit Louis, who promptly turned and ran towards the Donga, with Kabanga, Langalebelele, Dabayane and others in pursuit. Apologies to any Zulu listeners if I've mispronounced those names. As he reached the bottom of the Donga, he turned to face the men behind him and fired two shots, more slowly, and still he hit nothing. Another warrior now appeared over the lip of the Donga on Louis's right. Langalibalele threw a spear which struck Louis in the thigh, but it either fell or he pulled it out, and with this spear in one hand and his pistol in the other, he managed to keep his attackers at bay for a second. One of these warriors, Umpalasi, wrote that he saw the prince seize Langalibalele's assegai and wield it. Langalibalele said that he hit the prince first and on the thigh. I saw the prince twist as he turned to face his pursuers. He then advanced quickly on Habanga and paused only on seeing a Zulu approach him on his right rear. When he fell, he had an assegai in his right hand and a pistol in his left. He had just tried to change them from one to the other. In defending himself, he put his left foot into a hole and slipped a little, and then the men rushed on him. And so, the last hope for restoring the Napoleonic dynasty was dead. This was a big moment for all of Europe. The Zulu warriors, true to their traditions, cut open the prince's stomach. This was a practice known as Khaka, and was to allow the dead man's soul to escape. A number of the warriors then repeatedly stabbed the prince in a ritual called Khamula. Finally, those involved in the kill stripped him in order to wear his clothes. This is a practice known as Zila. 
His sword, that amazing family heirloom carried at Austerlitz, was taken and later given to the Zulu king, Hetzwayo. He then returned it to the British as a peace offering. Alongside the prince, troopers Abel and Rogers of Bettington's horse were killed, as was the unnamed Zulu guide. Their graves can still be visited today. A stone was also placed to commemorate Louis, whose body was removed by a party of the 17th Lancers the next day and eventually returned and buried in England. Lieutenant Carey and the rest of the survivors, shocked and depressed, raced back to the British camp. While there wasn't realistically much they could have done to save the prince, the lack of action, their inability to regroup and return to look for him, all very much weighed against them. Lieutenant Carey was now about to face a terrible storm. How's this for bad luck? As soon as he approached the camp, the first men he found were those two fire-eaters, General Evelyn Wood and Lieutenant Colonel Redvers Buller. Buller asked why Carey looked so shaken. The prince is dead, he replied. Buller asked where was the body and how many men had he lost. When Carey couldn't answer, Buller, a bear of a man, told him he should be shot. Now I can't help but feel a little bit for Carey. When the alarm was raised, it was a case of every man for himself, and in the spare of the moment, he made the wrong call. I'm sure that he later wished he had died alongside the prince. His career was as good as over. He was later court-martialed and sent back to England under arrest. But his conviction was overturned, and he eventually returned to his regiment, the 98th, only to die of disease in India in 1883. So there you have it, guys. The death of the Prince Imperial was massive, massive news at the time. I've even got copies of the Illustrated London News from the time with a big picture of his coffin on the front page. This was a big deal. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Do stick with me because I am going to do more Zulu War stuff throughout the course of the year, including an interview with Cam Simpson all about the Frontier Light Horse, who I can only describe as the special forces of the Anglo-Zulu War. Hopefully in a couple of weeks as well, I'm going to have two great guests on to discuss the end of the Peninsula War. That's Colonel Nick Lipscomb, who's written numerous books, and also, also Marcus Berriford, who's a distant relative of Marshall Beresford, who we all know so well from those wars, from that campaign. Just a reminder that if you want to see pictures and maps that accompany these episodes, please do feel free to follow my YouTube channel as well, Redcoat History, where I post videos of all of these episodes. All right, guys, take care and all the best.